Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website at zanstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Witwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And in today's episode, Ali, we are talking documentary films. We have Han Yi. She is a multi-award-winning film producer with expertise in international co-production, strategic marketing, and distribution of China-related independent films. In 2012, she won the prestigious Taiwan Golden Horse Award for her production work on the film *China Heavyweight*. Yi is from Chengdu and is a former anchor on the Sichuan Provincial Television. We also have Malcolm Clark, who is a two-time Oscar winner, four-time nominated Academy Award Documentary Film Director, writer, and producer, currently living in Shanghai. Malcolm has made films in 80 countries, including China, where he's lived since 2014. His work has been concerned with explaining, interpreting, and demythologizing the renaissance of modern China to an increasingly skeptical and polarized world. Both Malcolm and E currently reside at Artifact Entertainment, an international media company dedicated to producing world-class documentary and fiction films based in Shanghai. We'll be posting links to some of Malcolm and E's work on the show notes. And Ali, I should point out also that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Campaign Asia. And we remind you that if you like the show, please give us a five-star review on your favorite platform: Apple Podcasts, Spotify. They all have places to leave reviews, and we appreciate it very, very much. E. Malcolm, welcome to Shanghai, John.、Uh, e. Maybe you can start off. Give us an introduction of yourself, and how did the two of you connect and end up in Shanghai? Thank you, Bryson. Thank you, Ali. Honored to be on your show.、Uh, we've been. Trying to do this for a long time. I'm glad that we're finally here and doing this. Well, how I met Malcolm? He was、um, making a film at the time. I think back in 2000. Well, God, thirteen. Thirteen. Documentary film about the future of the relationship between China and the U.S.、Mm-hmm. And they were looking for a China-based producer. I was approached, and I was told it was two months' work. So I thought, well. Two months, I probably. How bad can it be? <laughs> exactly. And then you found out. <laughs> that film took us six years to make, just so you know. So that's how I ended up. No way. Yes. Yes, she had to. Re- re- she re- renegotiated her deal every six months for six years. That's not true. I was paid the same. <laughs> Six years of work. I know. And I know. can you imagine? In the beginning, I was told it was only two months. All joking aside, it was a wonderful experience working with you know a director like Malcolm. So I enjoyed that experience very much, and we both felt that、um, you know we could continue that kind of working、uh, relationship, and that's how we've been working、uh, ever since. That's great, and Malcolm. Uh, obviously, you met Eve. The same thing. You were looking to make this film. Why did you want to make the film in the first place? I believe we're talking about Better Angels, correct? I actually didn't want to make it, to be honest. The idea: there were two old China hands, a man called Robert Mundell, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, 
and, uh, and Henry Kissinger, who are both friends, and they were both of a certain age. Bob was in his 80s, Henry was in his 90s. They wanted to make a film that would do something to advocate for a better relationship between China and the United States. They were both supporters of what was happening in China. Bob Mandel had helped China a lot during the 90s in terms of their monetary policies. And Henry Kissinger has been writing and advocating about China and for China basically ever since he came over with Nixon many decades ago. And I still think Kissinger's book, which is called On China, is you know, arguably the best generalist book about China, that certainly that I've ever read. They were guys who were getting old and they wanted to have a kind of legacy film, uh, something that would try to make this relationship that was already getting rocky a little more reasonable to the average kind of American who didn't really know much about the relationship. And because that was a time when you know, people were starting to be increasingly skeptical about China and what was happening in China. So it was a, an assignment to make something that was not propaganda, that would be fair and balanced and reasonable about China, and that would advocate for a more kind of common sense approach to the positive sides of what the relationship between the established global superpower and the rising global superpower could do to help both themselves and, and the world. I was a bit skeptical about it. I didn't kind of jump at it. It was a lovely assignment and I'm, I was dying to come back to China, but I knew that it wasn't going to be easy and I knew that if I didn't get the right producer, it was going to be a nightmare. As it happened, I got lucky and I got to know Han Yi and she indisputably is the best documentary producer I've ever worked with and I needed that in China because it's a very tough place to make a film. So it worked out well. Everyone was happy at the end. It was certainly a bumpy ride. What was very clear at the end of that is that you know someone needed to keep doing this because you know the, the relationship was getting more and more troubled. There, there were more cooks in the kitchen stirring the stew and, uh, and many of those cooks were very anti-China. And I just felt there was a niche, there was an opportunity to make films about China to show the world that they should embrace China and not necessarily fear China. So I stayed on and we've, we've been doing that ever since. I've seen the film. I don't think Ali's seen the film. I also know that you've shown it several times in Shanghai. Has it been shown publicly? If not, what, what happened to the release? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that or enlighten the audience of where they might be able to see it. Because it's a great film. I loved it. We did show it publicly. Uh, Better Angels was in cinemas in 2018. Uh, a limited release in China. And also we had very limited release in the U.S. as well. Unfortunately, we don't have um, an online distributor yet. Uh, it was some audience, like cinema audience, got the chance to see it back then. Hopefully we'll find a home for it. Perhaps we could send you the link of a 20-minute demo or trailer can show to your audience, but unfortunately not the full-length film right now. The film took a long time. It was a tough film to make for a variety of reasons. And by the time the film came out, um, we started making the film during Obama. We ended making the film, uh, finishing the film during Trump. 
That was a very, very difficult time to release a movie that was basically advocating for tolerance, acceptance, forbearance, uh, an embrace of one superpower by the other. When China was being demonized by Trump during his campaign and, you know, latterly during his presidency, we were kind of flying in the face of history at that point because trying to say anything positive about China in 2018 was frankly a fool's errand. And so, and, and you know, that's just the way of the world. You can never know. Sometimes you release a film and the timing is perfect. Al Gore managed to get uh, a Nobel Prize uh, nomination and a, an Academy Award for a film that wasn't very good but had a very, very important message because it came out at the right time. We came out at the wrong time. And that's just the reality, and we and we can't deny that. Malcolm, you're you're very slow. Because we started off with E, who was supposed to be on a two-month assignment. She ended up six years working with you, and seems like you repeated that on the film. If it had just been a couple months earlier, it wasn't because we were slow. It's we worked every day for six years. For six years. Wow. Let me tell you why. Actually, this is quite interesting, and it's worth just saying. When we started making that film, we, we thought we were going to make, we're going to shoot in China, obviously, because it's a film about China and America. We were certainly going to be shooting in America. What we didn't fully understand, I certainly didn't fully understand. You have to bear in mind, I'm not a China hand. I'm a generalist and I'm not a Sinologist. And although I knew that China was an expanding power with uh, expanding reach throughout the world, I had no idea that if you want to make a film about China in the modern world today, you have to go everywhere in the world because China is everywhere in the world. And if you don't do that, you're not doing the job right. You know, we ended up shooting across America, obviously, across Africa and, and Europe and in Asia also. So it was the only way to show China's reach and China's influence and China's kind of presence as a global power. That also meant going back to the well and getting more money to support the, the, uh, the thesis because we, we hadn't budgeted for that originally. So poor Yi got trapped in our um, kind of learning curve because we were basically learning on the job about China and all that China entailed. Yeah, what attracted you to do documentary films in the first place in China? I know that you've been doing this for quite a while. What drives you to the genre? And maybe you could talk about what motivates you to do documentary films. Earlier when you were introducing me, you know, you mentioned that I worked for uh, Citroen Television. So I started out, uh, you know, working for their uh, English news department. Later, a little bit at CCTV's English channel. But during those years, I found Daily news is too, it's not a, the right format for me, I found, because there are a lot of stories out there, a lot of interesting people out there, but because you only have one minute, a minute and a half, and longest three minutes a piece, you were out there just trying to get a quote, no longer than 30 seconds. And sometimes you meet very interesting people, you want to talk to them you know, communicate with them and, and, and try to learn about their stories. You just don't get the chance to do that. That's not the right format. And I found the pacing also was very, very fast. And I sometimes I just like to 
spend time with people and really get to know them and know their story and have some sort of you know in-depth meaningful conversation which you couldn't really achieve in, in in the news cycle you know what would be the next obvious choice that would be documentaries it's still in the uh, news world but it's a longer format it gives you more time certainly right better angels give us six years it's a long time to <laughs> see the world it's a to <laughs> get to know a lot of people and tell their stories. And I think the other thing that attracts me is that you get to experience another life. So for example, I made a film about a blind man. And then in order to tell their stories well, you have to spend a lot of time. So I have to put myself in their shoes and in a way that you are experiencing those people who cannot see what their life could be and what challenges they're facing. And like China Heavyweight is about boxers. You know, I, I never used to like boxing because I thought it was too violent. I thought those people are, they must be very sort of, you know, scary. But then when you get to know them, they have the tenderest hearts. And they're so, sometimes they're so shy even when they're not in the ring. So it's all very uh, contradictory to me. But, you know, you have this stereotype for certain people. But on, until you really get to know them, you wouldn't be able to really say that, that, that you know how they make a living and how they live their lives. So I find that attracts me a lot. So you, you get to experience different lives. Do you also feel that documentaries have a tendency to continue to exist? So where news is kind of momentary and it's, you know, it's, it's today and it's present time, it's yesterday, but documentaries have a tendency to, you know, that you can go back to them a year from today or five years from today and still reflect on life at that moment. And, and that's a very different story. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That, that's why sometimes documentaries take a long time to make. For example, if the character driven, you need to follow his or her trajectory. And that needs time. And time has its own essence. You know, you can only see changes through time. So it takes a long, much, much longer time to make. We were, Malcolm and I, you always joking about what's more challenging, making a documentary or making a fiction film. We're probably going to be hated by the fiction filmmakers. We always think that making documentaries is way more difficult because you're not paying these people to do what you want them to do. You have to wait, you have to be patient, you have to really gain their trust. But in the fiction world, you basically you pay for everyone. Actors, you ask actors and actresses to do what the director want them to do. Slightly different. But yes, I mean, in China, I think really by comparison, if you compare right now with 10 years ago, I would say documentaries have become more popular. And you see more and more documentary films in cinemas. Compared to fictions, it's just small, small, small fraction, but they have become one format that can be accepted by the moviegoers. And now, 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, when we just started, at that time, we were talking to cinema managers and saying, you know, we want to release a documentary film. They were like, what? So now they understand other than fiction films, there's non-fiction films that can still go to cinemas, that can still attract a certain number of audience. It's not a huge box office, but I mean, as the film genre, it should be there. So in this sense, I think documentaries has been more accepted and more recognized in this country. And there are 
a lot of young and upcoming filmmakers. Uh, it's not easy. I think Chinese documentary film filmmakers certainly have a position in the world. Hi, I'm Ali from Shanghai Chan. If you like our show, why not support it with a small donation? Become a Shanghai Chan patron by donating as little as five dollars a month, and you will get a cool Shanghai Chan branded sticker. For ten dollars, you get one of our amazing Shanghai Chan coffee mugs. Just go to Patreon.com/ShanghaiChan to sign up. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/ShanghaiChan. Thanks for your support. I was just gonna say, cinemas don't necessarily, at least in in today's world, cinema is no longer the metric for whether or not there's an audience for a film or for documentary. I would imagine that there's just so many different ways for people to get knowledge. In the 1940s, Sam Goldwyn, famous studio boss and film producer, said, "Ah, documentaries. Those are the films where you don't pay the actors, right? They are still the films where you don't pay the actors." But what the streaming services are finding out is that there, if you choose the subject correctly, people show up in droves to watch documentaries globally. There is a there is an audience for documentaries. They are much less expensive than than、uh, traditional dramatic feature films. They're made for a fraction of the price. And a lot of people like them, and a lot of people watch them. So, in a sense, what the、um, the kind of algorithms of Netflix of, and Amazon and Disney and Hulu have、um, revivified the documentary film business because now people can make films, sell them to those streaming services, make money, and、um, and find a global audience. And that's that's wonderful, I think. I remember another film. It's actually not a film. It's a four-part series that you two have recently done, called "A Long Cherished Dream."、Uh, you said that there are so many great stories in China waiting to be told, and "A Long Cherished Dream" is definitely an example of that. And I know that it's really gotten millions of views and won the hearts of Chinese audiences. I especially loved "Drive Like a Girl." That was fantastic. What were the stories you wanted to convey, and why do you think this type of storytelling is refreshing to audiences in China? What kind of storytelling, or what kind of of conveying these stories, is missing in China these days? You have to bear in mind that "A Long Cherished Dream" had a, a subtext. The subtext was that we were asked to make four films. About poverty alleviation, about how people in China had emerged from poverty and were, you know, kind of finding their way in, in the modern world, like they had never had an opportunity to do before. Any film, it doesn't matter whether it's a documentary film or a feature film, any film that is successful is about. You know, maybe one, maybe two, maybe a group of characters, but it's always the casting process which is the most critical. You have to have an interesting central character. You have to have a you, you, that character has to be engaging, and either because he or she is evil, or because they're particularly good, or they're very loquacious, or they're doing something exciting. The only mandate that we had was let's find people who have. Can show both China and the rest of the world how they have emerged from real privation, extreme poverty, 
And so what we did was we, you know, we, we sent out our researchers and we spent a lot of time, we probably in depth looked at over 100, around 100 if not more than 100 people to, 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 to basically find four subjects for the film. The first film was about actually a, a, you know, a village, a communist party village chief who was, I can only say, you know, by, you know, in, in, in my world, my Christian world, he was, he, was, he was saintly. He was such a good guy. He was so self-effacing. He was so eager to help the people in his village. And, the, and, and his job was to persuade people to leave their village behind, where they were living in appalling poverty, to go into new housing that the government had given them, where they had running water and flush toilets and, you know, proper bedrooms and so forth. You would think that this would be a really easy job for him. You'd think that he'd be able to kind of show up and say, hey guys, we found you a nice apartment in a town, you know, 20 kilometers away, and they would just jump at the opportunity. But they didn't because they're traditional Chinese peasants and their families and their ancestors have lived in these mountains for generations and there was no way they were going to move without really, really, really considering the benefits. So that was his job and he was, he was wonderful at it but he was also a, a kind, humane, extraordinary person. And so he was, a, he was, he was the subject of our first film. Our second film was about a woman who had grown up poor, very, very poor. And when we met her, she was about 21 years old. And she was, she was about 4 foot 10, I think, nearly 5 feet, but not quite, tiny. And she was driving this monster truck across China, uh, one of the few. There's, there are some, but not many, the few female truck drivers, long-distance truck drivers. And, and her story, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to monopolize this and, and, and talk about it in detail, but again, just extraordinarily uh, brave woman and, and, and a real kind of, yeah, if you will, a female empowerment story uh, through the eyes of a, you know, a woman who had literally uh, grown up in a in a place that looked more like a pigsty than a home, they, they had the opportunity to, to better themselves and they were seizing it and they were finally getting their dream. Their dreams were coming true. And I think the, the entire series was about that, was about how, you know, we hear all these kind of criticisms of China and the Communist Party and, you know, all these kind of terrible things that are supposed to be happening here. But people are living better than they've ever lived. And the, the series was called A Long Cherished Dream because they all wanted to fulfill their own potential. And these people were, were, were doing precisely that. The fourth film, I'll just say one little thing about the fourth film, was about four people from a very poor village who had promised themselves in the 90s that they were going to stick together through thick and thin. They were now all multimillionaires. They had basically ridden the wave of the delivery business in China and the parcel business, you know, the, uh, sending goods and services all across China, this kind of uh, logistical nightmare of how to deliver things to a huge country. And some people got on that, on that kind of escalator with Alibaba very, very early and they became super rich. 
And what was interesting, again, about these people was how they were peasants. They were very, very wealthy peasants. But they all had China, the, 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 the kind of renaissance of modern China, to thank for living very, very different lives than their, you know, their parents, their ancestors. It was a proof positive that you know, something, at least, here in China is, is, is being done very, very well. Over 100 million people were pulled out of uh, absolute poverty by, I think it was 2020, right? So it was, it, it's quite an achievement, and that was what we, that was the series that we made. It was very moving, and um, for me, it was, you know, it was a kind of revelation to, to meet these people. I thought that what I liked about the film was the way that you were able to take a step back and cast them as real people. It wasn't what I expected it to be. I was ready for a very strong propaganda film and I didn't get that. I got a story about someone's life and in many aspects, I thought it was more impactful that way. Well, you won't see any propaganda in anything that we do because we don't do that and we won't do that. I mean, I don't want to be a propagandist for the Chinese government and, and candidly, they don't need me and they don't need Yi to do that. They have organs, official organs, that make films differently. Some of them are good films, a lot of them I'm not so keen on. But the point is, if, if we want to carry the message, a positive message about China abroad, foreign audiences are very sophisticated. They can smell propaganda at a thousand yards. You know, anything which is propagandistic has a whiff about it, and we won't do that. It's, you know, it's not necessary. All you have to do is to tell the truth. You find the right people and you tell the truth about them, or rather, you let them tell the truth about themselves. There's no interference, there's no interjection. We don't tell them what to say. All we do is to create a circumstance, which is actually quite difficult with Chinese people, where they feel comfortable speaking about themselves, because Chinese people are not Americans, you know, you can sit on a bus in New York City with an American and you'll hear their life story as you're, you know, you're on the 104 Crosstown bus. Not here in China. People take their time to get to know you and they are quite shy and quite reticent and quite private. But if you can, if you have enough skill to create an environment where they trust you, they'll open up and, and then you, get, you can get some real treasure. And uh, that's what we try to do. One of the reasons that, Bryce, you said earlier that this series has been very well received here in China is exactly because the way we tell these stories. There are different schools of storytelling in terms of uh, documentary uh, filmmaking here in China. And uh, I would say one of those was quite conservative and it's very uh, script-heavy. Narrations written wall-to-wall and tell you what to think. And also because these are big issues. If you're talking about poverty alleviation, if you're talking about One Belt, One Road, all those things are so-called big issues. And the so-called mainstream media like to tackle these issues by talking about issues because they want to explain what the policies has been done and executed. But we focus on people, and now we do think only personal stories and human emotions can travel, and they can travel without language. 
you can clearly see whether this this person is happy or sad. We have a perfect scene. It's, I always talk about this scene. We have this family finally leaving their village home and moving to a new apartment in town, and we just film their journey. Uh, packing and getting into the car and the car ride. There's no narration. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. But every single one of their expression on their face, you can see it clearly what they're thinking. The younger generation is full of hope. You can see the spark in their eyes. The older generation, you can clearly sense the the, the sadness that they're leaving their memory behind. And the anxiety of what they are going to face. Yeah. yeah. So I I do think the, the different thing is in our series, or very much so, it's Malcolm's being a, a director that always advocate on emotions. You have to touch people by their heart, not to try to convince them intellectually. If you can touch their heart, they'll remember the story. They'll remember these characters, and that's what we've been trying to do. That is why I think you know the series was quite well. Received here because it's just different. You let the characters tell their own stories, and if you find the right character, they can just tell their stories. They don't need you are just there trying to、uh, record them, rather than through your interpretation telling the audience what to think about their stories. That's great. We'll post the links for the film on the show notes.、Uh, I re- recommend people to watch it. There's another piece of film that you have done. I believe it's going to be a ten-part series called Hong Kong Returns, which you describe the conflict. What motivated you to tell the story, and when do you expect this body of work to be released? This、um, this body of work, which is ten films, but the short films. I think the you know the longest film is about thirteen minutes, and the shortest film is about eight. There are ten of them. In the series, and the reason—it's actually kind of a personal look at what happened in Hong Kong. Because when I was there, I was working on another project. Well, actually, we were there doing publicity for Better Angels. Yes, that we started <laughs> that. That's true. No way. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you could, and that was in 2019. So that's that's the, that was the sixth year of the, the Better Angels. Anyway, we we were in Hong Kong. It was getting more and more. Volatile on the streets, more and more violent, and it it was very clear to me that what because I you know I I, I was tear gassed I was、um, I, I had Molotovs thrown down the street at myself and my crew. We were in the middle of the the violence quite a lot. But what was interesting is that what I was seeing on the streets and what I was seeing being reported in the West were were actually quite different. And it became very clear to me that,、uh, and again, you know, I have to predicate everything I say by saying that I'm not an expert. But so, you know, I, I know about as much about Hong Kong as I do about China. You know, that is kind of empirical knowledge. It's not academic knowledge, and it's not because I did a PhD in this subject. I, you know, I'm interested, and I'm a filmmaker, and I keep my eyes and ears open. But what I saw in Hong Kong was that the story was being misrepresented in a colossally irresponsible way. As far as I was concerned, the moment I the kind of light bulb went off that I should do something was when there was a demonstration. There were probably a couple of hundred thousand people on the streets. I was there. A lot of other reporters was there. There was a guy from the BBC, a young guy, couldn't have been more than thirty, maybe thirty-five. 
and he was doing a stand-up uh, to camera, reporting, uh, sending it you know, by satellite back to London. He was wearing a flak jacket. He looked like he was, you know, he'd come out of Quang Tri province during the Vietnam War. You know, he had so many pockets in his pants and in his jacket. It, it was like the full military get-up. He wasn't in any danger, but he was, he was like living the dream of the foreign correspondent. And he was characterizing what was actually a peaceful demonstration as, as a conflict for the ages between the idealistic, democratically yearning students and the evil Chinese superstate. And when I heard that, I kind of wigged out a little bit because it was such nonsense. And it was, to me, it was, you know, there was no evidence. He knew nothing about Hong Kong, he knew nothing about what he was reporting. He was basically fulfilling the mandate of a newsroom back in London that knew nothing about Hong Kong. And it bothered the hell out of me. And I said, you know, I have to do something which at least puts this conflict, because there was certainly conflict, in perspective. So this 10-part series is very personal to me. It's going to upset a lot of people, probably, because it's absolutely a contrarian look at what happened in Hong Kong. It's not pro-China particularly, but it's certainly not pro-demonstrator. And I, I just think it's about time someone kind of spoke up about Hong Kong's problems, which are profound and which were never really discussed during that time. It was always David versus Goliath. It was never about all the problems in Hong Kong which needed to be solved and were never solved, certainly by the British, by my people, who were, you know, dreadful profiteer colonialists nor by the governments that came from 1997 uh, onwards. So it's a different kind of series. And I, I suppose I'm going to get yelled at or criticized, but frankly, I don't care, but because everything in this series is true. That's the point. There's no propaganda. It's all true. And it will come out around the 15th, I think, of this month, roughly. And the idea is for it to all be... Uh, screenable and seeable by the 1st of July, which is the 25th anniversary of the handover from, by Britain to China. So the, the, the 1st of next month is the, is the key date. And is there any reason that doing it over 10 parts, is it just because there was so much content? This goes back to Ali was saying earlier, cinemas is not the ultimate uh, screen for all these contents. And we want to attract younger audience as well. So we want it to be on web series. So on the internet, if it's shorter, it's easier. So people wouldn't worry about, okay, I'm going to use my bandwidth or my data to watch a 90-minute film. And also because there are so many issues to talk about, it just fits. This format just fits the content, or the content fits the format. I think that's interesting that's happened to, to my business, and that is that I mean, I'm, I'm a long-form documentary filmmaker. I make 90-minute, two-hour movies, generally. A couple of films that, I, that I've made that have done quite well are short films. But a short film, for me, is about 38 to 40 minutes. That's the definition of a short film for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So it's still 40 minutes. But there's a huge amount of pressure now to make films that are like chicken McNuggets. You can watch them in five minutes and you can watch them on your subway ride to, to work on your cell phone. 
And I imagine that this Hong Kong series, which is 10 parts, 10 chicken McNuggets, it's kind of like one portion, that almost certainly it will be consumed predominantly on people's cell phones. So, you know, that's been very much uppermost in our minds. We, we wanted to do something that was easy to, you know, easy to watch, uh, exciting to watch, controversial to watch, and you could watch it, watch one episode between, you know, getting on the subway at your home stop and, you know, getting to your office and getting out. They're all around 10 minutes long. You know, more and more people are coming to us and saying, can you do that? Can, this is too long. 30, no, 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 30 minutes. You know, the, the, the movies that we made for Long Cherish Dream, they're all 30-minute films. Now that's too long. That's, you know, can you do the same thing, but can you do it in eight minutes, please? But this is not to say that we're going to give up the long format. We're just saying there are different contents. You approach it differently. There are some stories you just have to do it in a long format. It mm. won't work in short. Mm. But there are some, some you know, stories that can work perfectly in a shorter format. So we just felt that in this case, because there are so many issues involved and so mm. many events happening in 2019, and 10-part series just give us the right format, the right arena, if you will, to put on this show. I have a follow-up question to that. How do you anticipate your audience will react uh, to the content? Obviously, it's shorter format. I imagine it's going to be on Kaishou, Douyin, um, possibly also, uh, of, of, you know, in addition to uh, Tencent Video, etc. Is it an educational experience for the viewer? Are you looking for a reaction? Uh, are you just telling your story? Are you trying to get a message across that, as Malcolm mentioned earlier, is, is, is not necessarily being expressed within international media, but certainly to some extent might have been delivered within Chinese media? What reaction are you expecting from young people? You know, it's very interesting to kind of anticipate. One of the things that's very clear to me is that the Western media, the, the CNN, BBC, certainly the American media, Fox was a standout example. They were all very, very anti-China and they were very anti-Hong Kong government. I can understand where that is coming from because they have been subject to um, a fairly consistent kind of firestorm of anti-China media since about, well it started with Obama and it certainly went through Trump to try and say anything positive about China and obviously China has its shortcomings, it has its failings. You know, we'd be naive to say that the, the country does not. But it also has achieved some extraordinary uh, accomplishments in the last decade, which don't get spoken about or China doesn't get credited for. So if you speak up on behalf of China, and I really don't in this film, what I speak up uh, in this series, I speak up for the, the truth as I saw it on the streets because I did not think that it was being represented truthfully. There was a huge amount of fake news. And I would imagine that I'm probably going to get roundly criticized for that. They're going to say, oh, I'm in the pocket of China. I've heard this so many times. I'm in the pocket of the Chinese government. He's being paid by China. It's nonsense. And it's sad that they, they feel that they can kind of they can get away with those kind of slurs, basically. I don't imagine that it's going to be hugely popular, but it's, it's, it's important. I've built a career kind of getting into trouble, saying things about places around the world that other people didn't believe. And, you know, the one thing that 
I, I really do believe is that in the long run the truth will set you free. The, the truth will come out. Sometimes years later, many, many, many years later, I mean, I, you know, I worked for years in combat zones. I worked in war zones, in, in places where that were not very safe. And I've seen some horrible stuff and I've seen some horrible reporting about that horrible stuff. But ultimately, a lot of the things that we were saying that were very unpopular at the time are, you know, latterly seem to be true. And, you, you know, you can't bend to, to either fashion or to prejudice or to fake news. I mean, you know, 50% of, 60% of the people who vote Republican in the United States think that the election was stolen from them. God bless them if they want to think it, but it, it wasn't. They're wrong. And, you know, ultimately, you know, that truth historically will come out. Our job is not to look to be popular. If we look to be popular, we can't do our job. Our job is to try and find the truth and tell it unalloyed. Don't gussy it up. Don't try and sell it or oversell it. You know, don't try and tell people what to think. Just show them. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, you can't... This is not a popularity contest, you know. I'm not trying to win any um, friends. I'm just trying to show people the truth. Uh, Ali and I were always wondering what projects are you planning? What's in the pipeline? Any thoughts or ideas? I think that... The last two months, I've lived in a documentary film <laughs> in Shanghai. <laughs> I tell myself it, that this has got to be a film somewhere. There's a camera crew somewhere here uh, filming us, uh, parceling out the out the cucumbers during the lockdown to my neighbors. <laughs> um, do you have any future projects in the pipeline that you'd like to share with with us? Shall I talk about uh, talk about the script? Yeah, so here's what I did. For the last nine, ten month, uh, weeks, you mentioned earlier in the podcast this film that I made, uh, we made, uh, an artifact made called "Drive Like a Girl" about a, a young girl who was a long-distance truck driver. That film, the documentary that was on Tencent, was a hugely successful, hugely popular kind of event movie. I quite why it struck such a chord. With the Chinese public, I, I don't claim to understand, but I'm thrilled that it did. But it was a half-hour documentary film, and and her life and her story is bigger than that. So what I did over the last nine or ten weeks to keep myself from going completely crazy was I wrote a, a screenplay, which we will we will probably, if we're lucky, try and make next spring. And it's a theatrical film. It's a, it's a feature film. One of the things that I think we need to do in our business to, to grow this business is we need to branch into uh, fiction as well. We have a couple of uh, quite interesting projects that are all China-related, that they are certainly... China is front and centre. This is one of them. It will Again, it'll be a film... The subtext of the film will be... Uh, what happens to people who've lived in absolute poverty for generations and suddenly they, they have to meet the challenges of not being poor anymore or to be, you know, having, you know, having room in their kind of psychopathology to dream, to dream about possibly fulfilling their own potential. 
were also making a film about a, a, a man, a Brit, a series of film drama about a man called Joseph Needham, who was this kind of crazy English academic who came to China during the Second World War. He, he was the guy who discovered that everything that we think we invented in the West, we didn't invent. China invented it usually about a thousand to fifteen hundred years earlier than we did. And this is a man who who came to China with a huge interest in China and and conclusively proved that you know that China's contribution to science and technology, for, you know, formative contributions, uh, were extraordinary. And that you know the West, I, you know, from the time of the Greeks and Romans, was very much playing catch up, much um, much more than any of us could possibly. Um, possibly understand. He also happened to be a kind of mad womanizer and a, and a kind of a crazy eccentric and a marvelous character for a movie. So it's a film which kind of showcases what China had achieved, but it also is a, a film about one man's obsession with, with, a, with a, a civilization. Ali, are we ready for the A-B test? Uh, yes, we are. I think, uh, I think it's about time. A stands for Ali, B stands for Bryce. Uh, in the marketing world, when you're comparing uh, two types of campaigns or two types of activations and you look for uh, which of the two performs better, how many more people react to test A versus test B. What's happening today really is I'm going to test two words. Uh, Hai, I'm going to ask you perhaps four and then Malcolm, I'm going to ask you another four. It's an either or choice. And whatever comes to mind first will be, you know, we, we, we can talk about why uh, you can explain yourselves or we can laugh it off or we can just go over to the to the next option. So, Hai I'm going to start with you. Chen Kai Ge or Zhang Yimou? Chen Kai Ge. Hong Bao or Hong Yu? Hong Yu Chao Shou. Chao Shou. Xiao Long Bao. What? I know. I You'll be surprised. But I don't like spicy food. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Wow, that is a surprise. Uh, Chengdu or Shanghai? Oh, God, you guys, it's really difficult. Shanghai. Okay, Beijing or Chengdu? Oh, Chengdu. Malcolm, over to you. Uh, Michael Moore or Ken Burns? Two of my total <laughs> nemeses, I have to tell you. Michael Moore. USC or NYU? Uh, my son's at NYU. If he, if he heard me say USC, he would divorce me. Parasite or Pulp Fiction? Parasite, for sure. Uh, participatory or observational? Observational. Target King or Jackass? <laughs> Jackass, for sure. E. Malcolm, thanks for being on the show. It's been really, really awesome. So insightful. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. It's lovely Thank being you. here. And uh, good luck with, with future podcasts. Best of luck. It was great. And thank you for everyone for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day. Bye.